the final year of the U.S. Civil War, settled the question of whether government of the people, by the people, and for the people could long survive. But how did that final act unfold? When liberty hung in the air with the smell of gunpowder. We'll examine the citizens, soldiers, tactics, and politicians with a Pulitzer Prize finalist next. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners like you. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the death throes of the Confederate States of America. Our guide on this journey is New York Times bestselling author S.C. Gwynn who brings us Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. Sam Gwynn previously joined us for Four Quarters on a Gridiron Revolutionary. That book was The Perfect Pass, American Genius, and the Reinvention of Football. Find that interview in our archives at historyauthor.com, on our iHeartRadio channel, iTunes, or wherever you're listening now. And for a sample of Hymns of the Republic, visit the HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode, where we have an excerpt of the book posted to give you a sneak peek. You can also enjoy our History in Five Friday segment on S.C. Gwynn's previous book, Rebel Yell, The Violence, Passion, and Redemption of Stonewall Jackson. Or pick up his book, Empire of the Summer Moon, the 2011 Pulitzer Prize finalist in general nonfiction that recounts the rise and fall of the Comanche. Get to know our guest by visiting him at scgwyn.com or scgwyn on Twitter. That last name is spelled G-W-Y-N-N-E. Okay, now that we've arrived at New Year's Day, 1864, Let's join S.C. Gwynn and hear voices of the past singing Hymns of the Republic. I'm joined on the line by S.C. Gwynn, author of Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. Welcome back to the History Author Show, sir. It's great to be back here, Dean. Well, it was great to get a book across my desk that had your name on it because I enjoyed your last one, which was football, which was far afield, at least the last one you and I spoke about. So this one is in another area that I knew I'd be getting a special story, stories in this book, in Hymns of the Republic, that I hadn't read before, just as was the case with The Perfect Pass. The Civil War sticks with us in part. It's sort of a bed of music. It's almost background music, and sometimes it swells up for us like it will in a movie track. We still hear those songs. We still hear the things in the period that they would have been listening to, and not just actual songs, but also the prose of the diaries and the words that the statesmen used, all these high-minded phrases from Lincoln. I think if you look at the Gettysburg Address, there's not a 
single phrase in there that's not been somebody's book title. So these are all things that stick with us. Mary Chestnut's diaries, all of these things. If, you, if you're if you alive and in the world, it's almost a one of the rare common things that we have as a nation today where you can watch your own stuff, you can watch your own shows, and we don't have that common culture as much as we did, say, when we had only three channels to watch and you watched whatever was on TV. What do you hope that title, Hymns of the Republic, says to readers here in the 21st century in the wider context of the war's fiery, bloody conclusion and teaches them something about citizenry and the history of the country? Well, that's a good question. The headline is also meant to be read along with the the subtitle, which is the story of the final year of the American Civil War. So I, I have had people ask me about is this about the music of the Civil War, which <laughs> only, in the, only in the metaphorical sense. But so Hymns of the Republic, the, yeah, I think I came upon that idea when I was, I ran into a song that I cite in the book. It was known as the, the Negro Battle Hymn of the Republic. Obviously, Hymns of the Republic is a play off of Battle Hymn of the Republic. But I, I ran into it, and it was, it was kind of their own song, Union Soldiers, that they sang. And I thought, well, okay, that's an interesting kind of concept, that there were hymns. There was, say, the battle hymn, which was that kind of bloodthirsty, scriptural-based song of the North. But that there were other hymns, other constituencies. Uh, You know, there were black soldiers, there were women, there were people in the South. There was a multiplicity of voices, I guess. So that was the idea of it. And to kind of show in this war's final year, in which all this remarkable history was showcased, to kind of show the breadth of what had gone on. As I read Hymns of the Republic, I found that there were things in there like that where you didn't realize, oh, that comes right at the end of the war. That comes at the last year. The last year really isn't just a continuation of this grind that's going on. There are unique things that are happening there. And I think at first people might say, well, this is just a gimmick, you know, or we'll pick up the last year. How could it be that much different? But boy, is it ever different when boy, you're is reading it. it. <laughs> it's incredible. Boy, you know? is it. And <laughs> that's why I wrote it, because, you know, I had ri- I'd written a, a biography of Stonewall Jackson a couple of years ago called Rebel Yell. And and that book went right up to May of 1863 when Jackson was killed at the Battle of Chancellorsville. And so that's how far I got. And I didn't get any farther because there was no point. And in fact, my wife said if Jackson had lived to Gettysburg, we'd be divorced now because I would have had to uh, <laughs> I would have had to research Gettysburg, which I didn't. But looking at the war's final year, and this is why I ended up wanting to focus on it, in addition to the fact that no one's done that since Bruce Catton did it, won the Pulitzer in 1954 with the stillness at Appomattox. But, but I did that because it was just so much more bitter and vengeful and dark and extreme. It made the first two years of the war, in a lot of ways, to me, look like you know what they used to call a bandbox war, the, the war of glory and the war of innocence and the war of men marching off with light in their eyes while bands played in their squares, compared to the end where you have these the rise of this guerrilla and informal warfare, the rise of the prison camps, the rise of the anti-civilian warfare of Phil Sheridan and and William Tecumseh Sherman. I mean, it, just the levels of bitterness, I guess, and emotion. And therefore, because this happened at the end, this is the leg- the legacy of war is that, not the first year of the war, which was quite innocent by comparison. You write in the spring that there's daily bloodshed, daily death for the first time. And that's not something that 
had preceded it where they would have a skirmish. They would go lick their wounds. Lee would move around a bunch. The Union generals would run into each other. I'm disrespectfully picturing the Three Stooges, you know, trying to accomplish a task, even though they weren't <laughs> they weren't quite that incompetent. But that's the vision that that I have in my mind of there's a lot of very slow moving things. There's time to stop for a mint julep. These are all of the images that we pick up. But amidst all this bloodshed on top of everything else, Abraham Lincoln's running for re-election against his former top general, George B. McClellan, speaking of sitting around and, and planning, marshalling your forces and not moving very fast or at all. As you put it, the long knives are out for the president, including from Republicans like his Treasury Secretary, Simon P. Chase. Lincoln's re-election may seem like a foregone conclusion, and I know when I read history, I remind myself, put myself in the mindset of the time. We figure who would vote against Lincoln, but it's not the case, so I wanted you to give us a little flavor of that. Play play the Politico or the Hill.com here and take us inside that election. How close does Lincoln come to actually losing, to having to give up his seat? He and everybody else in America that summer before were convinced that he was going to lose. You couldn't find anyone who was sane, who thought <laughs> he was going to win. You really couldn't. That's not an exaggeration. The interesting thing, one of the, you know, the Civil War is such a maddeningly complex thing. And it, no matter what you're looking at, policy or battles or no matter what it is, um, the home front or something, I mean, it's so complicated. But one every once in a while it, it gets it goes real simple and it and in a way it did that in the final year of the war because all that fighting that Grant and Lee were doing for example in the wilderness uh, Spotsylvania Cold Harbor those horrible battles you know it was really for one reason and the one reason if you're from the north was to see that. Lincoln got reelected and if you're fighting for the South it was to make sure that he didn't. The whole war was about this one man, and therefore there's this obsessive kind of interest in Lincoln. And what you have happening into the summer there is you have a complete military disaster for the Union. Grant fails to beat Lee, not only that, but it's just, it's just one disaster after another. The war is not being won. The war, one of the big criticisms leveled against Lincoln was that he was mismanaging the war, and it sure looked like that was going on. There's this massive mutiny within Lincoln's own party against him. You have the Democrats absolutely riding high. Dem Lincoln was Republican, so the Democrats riding high at their convention that summer, just like, this is great. The war is going terribly. We are going to remove this guy from power. And, and it was a nation that was, you know— really tired of bloodshed and war and ready for peace. And this was what it was all about. And so I guess Lincoln himself believed he wouldn't be reelected. And then there's this one event that happened. Again, great clarity in a world of complexity. That changed that. And that was Sherman's taking of Atlanta on September 2nd. And worth noting that in those days, re-election wasn't a foregone conclusion for a president. Yeah. It had been since Andrew Jackson. So 30 years since. And so people, and in fact, people had the same reaction that they had to third termers with FDR and to Theodore Roosevelt where, well, you shouldn't even be running for re-election. So he had so many headwinds and you go through those in hymns of the Republic. And as I said, you want to put yourself in that mindset in that time. And you really do that for us. We, we get that feeling, well, he could have lost. And then you start wondering how things could have gone different. And then you jump into the story of, okay, here are the people at the time who are making that happen, who are turning the tide for Abraham Lincoln and the Republic. Yeah, it was really, uh, violently contested, I guess, race 
really over that summer and you had full-scale revolt within Lincoln's own party. And by the way, you picked up on something really interesting that most people don't know, that the assumption would have been that Lincoln, that a president wouldn't be renominated. I mean, it, it had been so long since any had. So not only was there assumption that he was just incredibly weak and vulnerable, and by the way, there were no polls. The only polls that existed were actual elections. There was no such thing as a poll. So nobody kind of knew, but it just looked like this total disaster. Everybody, like including Sam and Pete Chase and all these Republicans moving against him. The Democrats riding absolutely high, uh, higher than they'd ever ridden before. And it all really coming down to the management of the war and this idea that the Democrats were promoting and the Confederate Democrats and Confederates had a lot in common, many common interests, uh, one of which was to portray a war that was interminable, interminably bloody. Remember, this is a war where 750,000 people will die and another 500,000 probably were wounded in horrible ways. Bloody, interminable, and costly. I mean, it was just going to bankrupt the country. It was, it was, the rhetoric was just at full throat. So all that was true. And so what you get in the days post after Sherman has taken Atlanta, I mean, there's a feeling that Lincoln's going to win the election, but that hasn't happened yet. There has been no sign to say that he was going to. So the, the, the suspense continued and on into a fall campaign that the Democrats mounted that was just unbelievably racist. I mean, racist beyond your wildest dreams, absolutely worthy of the Confederacy at its worst. This was also part of that campaign against Lincoln. I want to back up to your very beginning because you titled chapter one of Hymns of the Republic, The End Begins. And I guess as we might expect from that subhead, the story of the final year of the American Civil War, we start with the bells ringing. They didn't have a ball to drop in Times Square in those days, but they did have the Washington, D.C. social season in the winter of 1863-64. You'd go to the White House, you'd have your party. It surprised me that you describe it as an almost hopeful tone. So say you go to that party every year and you're bringing me as your guest, since that's what you're doing with the readers here, because I'm sure you could picture it. Give us an idea. You're coming for your sixth, seventh, eighth, one of these at the White House. Now you're bringing us as your guests. What would we see at the Lincoln Executive Mansion? What would you lean over to us and whisper, this is different. The mood, the feel here amidst this yeah. war is different. The social scene was really in swing that year in the winter of 1863-64, as you said. And so you had, even though Washington was this just kind of a miserable little place in a lot of ways, there was still this kind of social world and the world of the parties. And, and as you were saying, Lincoln would would give these levees and parties and wonderful places. And what had happened in the North was that after just a run of unbelievably bad military performance in, in 1862, really, you had some victories suddenly, some Northern victories. Specifically, you had Vicksburg and you had Chattanooga, huge, huge victory in the West. Those were both Grant, this guy who arrives at this very moment to take over. And you had Gettysburg. And so you had these sort of reasons to hope. Lee didn't think he'd been beaten at Gettysburg, but the North thought he'd been beaten. Just the very fact that you could beat Lee even once was a big deal. And so what loomed on the horizon, I guess, was hope, some kind of hope that this war was going to be managed, that it might be over. In fact, those victories, I mean, Vicksburg, Gettysburg, Chattanooga, those victories, which took place between the summer and the fall of, of 1863, 
had gotten people talking about this new word that nobody had ever really talked about before called reconstruction, kind of, well, gee, we're, we're going to win this, we, the union, and what are we going to do with this giant nation? What are we going to do? What are we going to do with the black people in it? What are we going to do with their political systems? Are we going to let them back in? Are we going to lock them all up? I mean, all these questions. So, so at that reception you're talking about, you might well have been talking about a possible union victory. And that was something that wasn't talked about a year before. It wasn't even on the table. You had this invincible army of Northern Virginia under Lee and didn't look like they were going to lose. I'm thinking of the fact that you wouldn't have had all the all the swampy things we associate, the mosquitoes and the mud and, and <laughs> right. the horses, depending on what the temperature was. The idea that people are going to the social season amid all this death is also surprising. It's not as if Washington, D.C. is very isolated from the fighting. It's not an ocean away as it would be in the World Wars, for instance. It's right there, and they're getting they're getting the news all the time. They're getting the information. It starts to flow after that social season. For instance, you move from that, from chapter one, into the Fort Pillow Massacre of April 12, 1864. I wondered how much you followed chronology when you went through the book or how you decided to follow chronology and how much of that choice was that that's a sharp contrast, that you wanted to cite that, talk about how that slaughter changed the moral imperative of the war. And also you mentioned the African-American experience, the slave experience, how that changes that. Why put that second and what do you hope that that says to us after we've just come from this hopeful social scene? Right. So we come from that scene. That's the social scene. And the, the, the book opens with Grant arriving to take his commission as the first full-blown three-star general in American history. And he's supposed to save the Union. And although, as you noted, all of these parties and all of this stuff was going on, as in my comparison was a, a child's snow globe, which is this hmm. wonderful sort of utopian little place surrounded by an impenetrable barrier. There were 50 or 60,000 soldiers around the city of Washington. There were, what, 64 or something? I can't remember the number, but it was the most heavily defended city in the world at this point. So it, so it was like, you weren't exactly this, yes, fine, let's go to the great soirees and parties and, and let's party it out, but we're, we're surrounded by... I mean, we're the most heavily defended city in the world. Okay, so the question, though, is like, so what, what we go, that's my opening. Grant is coming to save the Union into this weird little world of Washington, this little snow globe world. So we then open chapter two, which happens a month later. It is the greatest single atrocity of the Civil War. It is the massacre of black soldiers by Confederates at this little obscure fort on the Mississippi River in Tennessee. And I went there because, one, it really did happen just a month before. And, and it happened before Grant and Lee and the big fighting and, and at the wilderness was going to start. I thought it was a perfect counterpoint to this weird little artificial world that was going on in Washington. But it was also chronologically, it was the thing that happened next. And what it showed to me was how, you know, the symbolism of Fort Pillow was that Lincoln had taken a war that was nominally to restore the Union and turned it into a war of black liberation. And that's the correct word. He issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which was promulgated in January of 1863. And then black soldiers came into the Union Army as instruments of their own deliverance. It was the, the single most remarkable evolution of the Civil War. It happened, and Fort Pillow was this one of the first big conflicts where Confederate soldiers had seen, well, slaves who literally just been working for their families, fighting against them. So it was quite a moment in the war. 
it's called the massacre and you say massacring the soldiers, but important to remind people who may not know that this is literally men that are trying to surrender and have their hands up and are just asking to be given quarter and forget about it. They're, they're just going to be slaughtered. These are treated with almost a demonic, terrifying fervor. This is the ultimate fear if you're a Confederate soldier that you have black soldiers armed and not only armed, but in uniform as your equal facing you. So it, it does make it a really, you said it's the next thing that comes. It is this huge set piece. And then when you have even white Northerners who black people aren't going to get much of a better shake from discussing, deciding what they're going to do with all these freed people, they read this and they that can't help but touch them and reach them. And as you say, in Hymns of the Republic, changes the moral imperative of the war. Yeah, it really was. I don't think people at the time saw it as the watershed necessarily, but I think in, within retro, I certainly do. And, and in retrospect, you do see it that way. This was a, uh, the details of this uh, massacre, and it was a massacre. No one, including Nathan Bedford Forrest, who presided over it, said it wasn't a massacre. His version of it was that this is what happens when white and black soldiers fight. The black soldiers will get massacred. That was his, his idea. And at Fort Pillow, there were white and black soldiers together, uh, both of whom died. But there was the, it was the reason for the massacre was the presence of the black soldiers who suffered who suffered disproportionately at the hands of the Confederates. And it just became this, it became a giant, big cause celebre in the North. It became a cause celebre certainly among black soldiers and even among white soldiers. There was this, you know, remember Fort Pillow was a rallying cry throughout that Virginia campaign of that spring. You mentioned General Ulysses S. Grant coming to get that third star. You had a great phrase when you describe how Lincoln addresses him when he brings him in there and is talking about, this is the speech I'm going to give, and then maybe you should say this. You say he treated him as a bright middle schooler. That's <laughs> funny. That's my own, I, don't, I don't know that anyone ever observed that before. I've never read it before, but it was like, he, I mean, he's telling him what to say, and it's like, you know, you would assume that, let's say, the head of all Union armies in the West, which Grant was, had some presentational skills. He would make this, at least that assumption. And the is go, OK, here's, here's what we're going to say. Here's what I'm going to tell you. And here's what you're going to say. And here's what we're going to do. And uh, that w when the moment comes for the presentation of the commission or whatever it is, Grant, you know, fumbles with a he lives up to all of Lincoln's probably worst expectations, fumbles with this badly written out thing that he can't read his own handwriting and he hesitates and he stumbles along and he doesn't do any of the things that Lincoln wanted him to do. So he's like failed in every single possible way. <laughs> uh, it was interesting that that was the beginning of this quite brilliant friendship that determined essentially what happened at the end of the war. It's human, and that's what I love. In the past, I think there would have been the temptation in some history in the world, you would say, well, he walked in, he was resplendent. No, nobody even meets him at the train. He's a oh, short okay. guy. You know, you would have made him sound taller. You would have made Lincoln sound so gracious. You would have rewritten it. Not you personally, obviously, as an author, but I'm saying, you know, the way we look back at history, sometimes we assume that. And instead, we're looking at Grant. We're looking at all these historical figures freshly all the time. He's enjoying Grant is a well-deserved resurrection at the moment in recent years. Uh, he has a statue now at West Point, which seems shocking that he, he hadn't had one before. He has. Grant has been revised. There was a kind of a South-leaning group of historians that had painted him as a drunk and a butcher 
and an incompetent, basically, not necessarily in that order, but that's this kind of Grant had somehow, he just butchered his way through the war because he had twice as many men as Lean. He would just throw his men and he didn't care if they died. And that was the way he won. That was part of the thing, that he was uh, drunk. He did have a drinking problem, but he mastered it. Uh, and finally, that he was uh, kind of, I guess, a corrupt, incompetent as president. All of those things have been revised, correctly so. I have great admiration for U.S. Grant. And he was too trusting, and he did have a drinking problem. And he was also willing to send men into battle to die in a way that no other Union general had been willing to do. But that's what Lincoln was looking for, a general who would fight. And fight. fighting, unfortunately, meant sending men to their deaths. And uh, anyway, yeah, the, the whole Grant the whole kind of grant revisionism. And I love that, as you mentioned earlier, when he, when he comes to Washington for his uh, investiture, nobody recognizes the guy. Here is a man as famous as Lincoln and more popular than Lincoln arrives in Washington and no one knows that he's there. No one meets him at the train station. He goes to from there to Henry Halleck's office, uh, uh, head of the uh, general in chief of the armies. He isn't there. Goes to Henry Halleck's residence. He's not there. Finally, he checks into the Willard Hotel, the busiest hotel in Washington, and still no one recognizes him. This is a guy who oceans of ink have been written about this man. His full-length portrait hangs in a Senate room a mile from the Willard Hotel, you know, with, in full dress with his hand on a ruined Confederate cannon. It just shows you the world that we they lived in back then. It wasn't an image-rich world. I mean, imagine, I don't know, Barack Obama or Lady Gaga walking into the Willard Hotel and not being recognized. You know? Yeah, or like, you didn't know what they looked like, right? Because right. as I said, maybe maybe that's why historians did it the way they did, what I said about inflating them. Because if you had never laid eyes on him and didn't have a photograph, you'd have pictured, well, this man must have been tremendous. And the people at the time wouldn't have written that he was five foot two. And after one drink, it would really hit him. They would have kept all yeah, that yeah. stuff and, quiet. And so, so here's this guy who arrives. And it's interesting because the physical types, you know, I mean, Lincoln was nobody's. People thought Lincoln was the weirdest looking person they'd ever seen. I mean, he was like a foot taller than everybody else. They had this funny, huge head. He was a bizarre physical type to them. Grant at whatever, 5'8 and 140 and, and kind of stoop shoulder with a mousy beard who didn't look like anything at all. These are, the, and you, when you see them meeting and talking at the White House, this kind of stork bending over to this little guy, this funny little guy. I mean, that isn't what you would thought, you would have thought the physical types were going to be there. They didn't look heroic. They looked peculiar. But in fact, they were heroic. He has a lifetime of failure grant, which is one of the things that makes him so compelling to me when I read about him. And this final year is what really transforms this guy who tries everything and fails. There's a fire in a building where he saves a woman and ends up losing all the money that he's entrusted with there to deliver. He's just one one really disappointing, sad failure after another. And he's really a sympathetic figure. He likely would have just died in miserable obscurity had it not been for the war. How does this final year transform the unassuming horseman whose soldiers later liken him to Thor the Hammerer and because of this relentless fight that you mentioned that he's, he's willing to keep fighting, keep chasing, bashing against the Confederate lines? How does that transform him? What will readers find changed about Grant other than that third star from New Year's Day to the New Year's Eve of that year? Uh, you know, a lot of people point to, and I think probably correctly, historians point to a particular moment after the Battle of the Wilderness. 
and this is in May of 1864. This is the beginning of the, the opening suite, if you will, of the war's final year. And it's an interesting moment. It is seen as transformative by many people right at the moment that it happens. And Sherman thinks it is the single greatest thing that Grant ever did. And before I get to that, I'll give you a little background to what happened at that moment after the Battle of the Wilderness in, in the spring of 1864. So Grant, as you said, he had been a, he had just been a failure. There's no polite way to put it. He had washed out of the army for drinking. The Union Army in those days was not, it was just a place where people drank to excess. That's all they did. It was like you couldn't tell the difference between the alcoholics yeah. and the people who just drank all the time. That was what the Union Officer Corps did. So it wasn't really Grant the only one who did that. His problem was he couldn't hold it. And he was very quickly reduced to this kind of slurring his words, kind of, you know, the sloppy TV kind of drunk from central casting. Uh, which was unfortunate. But then he'd failed at every single thing he tried. And there were all kinds of things that he tried from, you know, selling ice in the West to selling chickens to, I mean, he, he just fails and fails again and keeps failing. And there are some just moments when you can't even imagine how he could have gotten through them. I mean, one particular moment, this is where he's been reduced to selling wood, firewood on the streets of St. Louis. This is a West Point graduate. And he's sitting there selling woods in the streets of St. Louis when some of his classmates and friends from West Point show up and they can't believe it. They grant, Grant, what has happened to you? I mean, good Lord, it was that kind of, you see a, a former peer who's fallen so low and, you know, then they invite him into their hotel to play cards with them. And one of them is a guy who was a close friend of Grant, who was in Grant's wedding named James Longstreet, who was at the time a that Grant is going to fight Lee here, Lee's chief lieutenant. And they play a game of brag. And, and after the game, Grant goes and presses, uh, you know, whatever it is, a $5 gold piece into Longstreet's hand saying, this is a debt that I owed you from 15 years ago. And Longstreet goes, you know, Grant, Grant don't do this, man. You Come on, really, Grant insists. That's so Ulysses S. Grant. But here's the thing about Grant to remember. And now I'm going to catch you back up with the Battle of the Wilderness. The thing about Grant to remember, though, is that in spite of all of this failure, he never quite sees himself as that failure. He never accepts that he's a failure. And he doesn't, you know, you would think that a guy who had a drinking problem of any kind would have been well gone into that. No, Grant at the time, this moment when he's selling firewood, he's not drinking. Anyway, Grant sees the world in a different way. He sees it in a more hopeful way, and he, he refuses to accept failure. Okay, let's go to the first big battle of that spring, the Battle of the Wilderness. By some boneheaded move, the Union decides to fight in the same place, which is this thorn tangle of thorn scrub and briars, and it's, it's, it's this horrible, thick woods you can't even walk through, which was the scene of Robert E. Lee's greatest victory at Chancellorsville a year before. You know, and why the Union, I'd I go into this why, but it was it was just the stupidest move they ever made, which was to go back into that wilderness, you know, hand Lee back his advantages of terrain, because Lee, Lee didn't have as many men, and Lee neutralize the Union advantage and firepower. So they go in, it's and the Union just gets hammered. This is the great first fight between Lee and Grant, right? And Grant just gets hammered. If you look at the numbers, it's worse than Chancellorsville. And so in every case where this has happened before, the Union Army turns around and moves back north away from the enemy. 
every time it had happened before. You know, you have them fleeing at the first two Manassases, but you know, absolutely fleeing back across the Rappahannock after Chancellorsville. And this is what everybody expects Union armies to do when they get beaten, to move off. Lee wins, they lose, they move off. There's this moment after Chancellorsville. Everybody knows what's happened. It's just not only is Grant not one, if the casualties are enormous. And these men are sitting by the camp and they're when they're looking to this little road that the road, a little pathway in the woods, and they see a group of riders coming. And the riders, and at some point they realize that this little man in front, uh, Grant was actually the greatest rider anybody had ever seen. Grant riding at the front of the pack. And everybody looked at this and sort of did a double take and then realized that the direction that Grant and his staff were riding was south toward Richmond. And the men went absolutely crazy, just screaming and throwing. They would light these pine knots and throwing them in the air and just screaming. It was what it was, was Grant didn't see this as a terrible defeat. He just wasn't built that way. He didn't see it that way. He saw this as the opening battle in a campaign. His view was, yeah, we took our licks today, but yeah, we'll get them next time. We're moving south. It was one of the critical moments in the war, and, and people saw it at the time that it was, and it was an entirely a reflection of a man who had spent his whole adult life failing, but refusing to accept that that's what was happening. It's quite interesting. It's a wonderful moment, one of my favorite in the war. You said get him tomorrow, and it reminds me of that moment after, I guess, the first day of Shiloh, and William Tecumseh Sherman comes up to him and is thinking of suggesting, let's just back off and retreat. And then he just looks at Grant and something changes about the inside Sherman of Grant's demeanor. And he says something completely different than what he came to say. He says, wow, we had the devil's own day today or something very close right. to that. And Grant says, yeah, lick him tomorrow. Yep. And uh, what? Well, that's who the same else exact, but a guy? That's, that's, you know? a, that's a, the great thing that you bring up. That's exactly the same mentality. They just got hammered. I mean, badly. Both Grant and Sherman failed to say this the worst failure of reconnaissance maybe in the entire war. They, for, they failed to see all these Confederates coming, and then they just had a disastrous day. And there he is, as you said. That's a great quote. Look at him tomorrow. I mean, he didn't accept it. He was unlike in that way any Union general in the early war. I mean, they, they all accepted their defeat and moved off. You're enjoying my conversation with S.C. Gwynn, author of Hymns of the Republic the story of the final year of the American Civil War. You can find him online at scgwin.com or by following scgwin on Twitter. That name is G-W-Y-N-N-E. You can also read an excerpt from Hymns of the Republic, which we link to at the historyauthor.com page for this episode, give you a little sneak peek, a taste of the writing and the really sweeping feel here, the very human down in the trenches, you're meeting these people, tone that you'll get from the book. Sebastian Junger, author of Tribe and the Perfect Storm, writes, quote, S.C. Gwynn's riveting book, Hymns of the Republic, finally made me realize that one cannot fully understand America without understanding the American Civil War. Gwynn's work is deeply researched and yet written like the best kind of fiction. It stopped me in my tracks. Gwynn has to be one of the very best writers working today, unquote. I wanted to focus on that line about understanding America that we hinted at at the very beginning. I mentioned that we still hear the music and the words of the Civil War mixed into our national conversations, but 
we all know that we're hearing, but we may not be listening. And those are two different things, much less what the voices from the past are trying to tell us. Something like Grant, it's it's easy to see. That's an inspiration if you know just how to look at him. But it took us almost a century and a half to see Grant that way. So how do you hope citizens will come to a greater understanding of the country that they live in as they read hymns of the Republic? You know, you would mention that we still hear the music. In my lifetime, I have never seen anything like the level of interest and engagement on the civil war that we have right now. I just read a long piece in the Atlantic Monthly that was talking about among other things, asking whether we're in 1850 right now. There's this, we have our president saying there's going to be a civil war if you try to remove me from power. We have this national debate going on specifically about Confederate monuments and generals. I think what pulled that trigger somehow was the, was the shootings at the church in Charleston. But man, that was a trigger that's, you could have pulled that trigger anytime you wanted to. It isn't as though something just changed about the Confederacy or how the war went. So you have, we live in a time when these echoes are just everywhere. You know, it's hard to say. I think on one level, I think it's just important that if we live in a deeply divided country, which we do, that Americans need to read about the history of the divisions in our country. I think that's just important. On some level, we need to know what those were and what happened when we were that divided. And and, and maybe this is a somewhat cynical view. I, I think we are a deeply divided country by nature. I think that's what we are. We are a messy democracy that has somehow worked because the founding fathers somehow built this machine that would accept this and somehow it muddles forward. And I mean, even back in colonial times, you know, 30 percent of, of the people in the colonies were royalists. I mean, it was maybe not quite as divided down the middle as we have been in the last 25 years. But, you know, it was pretty bad. You know, when I grew up in the 60s was absolutely, it was not only divided, it was bloody and violent. I mean, there were city, but Washington was burning and LA was burning and Baltimore was burning. Riots at the 68 Democratic Convention, a lot of violence going on. Today, I think, you know, what my father used to say when he was talking about people who who didn't agree on something, he would say, you know, they can't even agree that it's Tuesday. Boy, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I mean, I have neighbors and I have a neighbor, you know, or it's, it's a bit mixed in my neighborhood between Democrat and Republican. I mean, they can't agree that it's Tuesday. Now let's go back to the war. The worst divisions ever in our history were, uh, you know, leading up to the civil war in the 1850s in particular, where, yeah, and people couldn't agree on anything and they eventually couldn't even agree on what the war was supposed to be about. But I think, on some level, one lesson that I would take from this is a positive lesson, although in a grim kind of a way, that as bad as it may be now, it's nowhere near as bad as it was in 18, you know, 59 or 1860 or 1861. It just isn't. And as occasionally bloody as our country may be with people supporting one political side or another shooting other people, that doesn't come up to the 750,000 deaths and 500,000 wounded in the Civil War. And the other thing about the Civil War is even though we didn't really solve everything, certainly as a country at the end of that war, and we're still solving the problems of race, obviously, but as a nation, we got through it and we muddled through it. The nation came out in some ways you know, stronger than it had been, and even united in World War II in a way that had never been before. So I kind of take the lesson that, well, yes, it's bad now, <laughs> but it was a lot worse then, and we got through it. 
today, the states ignoring some federal laws. There's so many things that your book, Hymns of the Republic, can put in perspective for us, especially when, and as a historian, I'm sure this is a curse that you share that I have, you'll read casually in some news article where they're invoking it and they they just get it wrong or they don't understand the larger context of it. They've maybe just gone and gotten the Wikipedia version of it or they've gone on the back of a cereal box and gotten a little bit of trivia. It's like, yes, that was true then, but this, like with Andrew Johnson right now, David O. Stewart, who wrote the book Impeached about him, is just such a great resource. And I've interviewed him twice and I, I love to see somebody learned speaking about it because then I put down those, is it Tuesday or isn't it Tuesday biases that we all have and say, here's somebody that I would hope we could all agree knows what he's talking about. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them or stop thinking, but gosh, be thinking about something. Be thinking about, you said by nature, America being divided, but also by design. This was a system that allowed us to work out those differences without having to resort to shooting each other and allowed the states to be different, have their own ways and be those laboratories for democracy. It gave us so many great little turns of phrase. And I think when you read that, for instance, when somebody wins an election that you don't like, if you go back and my go-to usually is to tell people, hey, if we could get through James K. Polk buying and selling human beings from the White House, there wasn't an Oval Office then, but if we could get through that guy, <laughs> right. then we can get through whoever it is that you don't like at the moment. Don't don't get down on the country just because you think that. It's never as dark. And as you said, it, we're not living through that. And there are things we can do. And that counts for whoever we are. We have more freedom to do things today than we ever did. One person who is in Hymns of the Republic that I didn't want to give short shrift is Clara Barton. Clara. Here's a woman who steps out and she didn't have to do anything. She could have just sat there. She could have just been a a diarist, for instance, like I mentioned Mary Chestnut. And I always think of Clara because we have a rest stop name for her on the New Jersey Turnpike. This This is one of our greatest honors. People may confuse her with, say, Molly Pitcher, who herself may be an amalgamation of various women that were out there in the Revolutionary War. You call her one of the war's most unlikely heroes. So I wanted you to give a moment here if listeners only know her maybe from the rest stop or aren't sure exactly who she was. Give them a little taste of what they'll get, who the woman that they will meet when they pick up Hymns of the Republic. Yeah, well, she's a great, for me, a great discovery. I mean, she's, she really is one of the great heroes of the war. And uh, in a war where, you know, women were not in prominent positions in the war, and it's hard to find, you know, women to write about, in fact. I mean, there's some, you know, noteworthy spies, some really wonderful female spies. And, of course, there were, there were lots of women running the ship back on the home front. But in terms of the war, they weren't soldiers in the war and they weren't running the war and they weren't in political power in Washington to run it. So Clara Barton was just, she essentially reinvented battlefield medicine. She was this kind of one woman powerhouse who would, she would raise money and persuade, she had all sorts of political allies and she would get herself into a carriage full of medical supplies and find her way to the front and supply these field hospitals out there. The stories are just astounding. And this is at a time when, I mean, she violated every kind of norm of what women were supposed to be doing back then. And even the Army Nursing Corps under Dorothea Dix, which was being born around this same time, uh, Dorothea Dix, you know, they had a frank horror, she had a frank horror of having kind of young or especially pretty nurses in field hospitals, because, you know, we know what happens in field hospitals, and it's pretty grim, and it's very physical, and it's very anatomical. 
And so they were very kind of pristine about that. And, and Clara Barton, of course, was was attractive and wasp wasted and was not it was the opposite. You know, Dorothea Dix wanted plain, <laughs> plain women who in even plainer dress and older, preferably. And that so anyway, Clara was this sparkling personality. And I'll just tell you one story that will tell you a lot about who she was and what she did. At the Battle of Antietam, which was the single bloodiest day in American history and still is, the morning of the first day was the single bloodiest three hours on the single bloodiest day. And that was when General Union General Joe Hooker was fighting Confederate General Stonewall Jackson in a place called the Cornfield on the north end of that battlefield. Somehow Clara Barton, who with a combination of passes and sort of, uh, you know, illegally penetrating Union lines. She, she had gotten herself around McClellan's entire army and up into this field hospital in the cornfield in the middle of the Battle of Antietam. She has her coach stuffed with medical supplies, and she's, of course, got a male companion because they wouldn't let a woman alone wouldn't be allowed to go anywhere near there, but it's Clara's running the show. Clara shows up at this field hospital that's literally on the edge of the cornfield. There's bullets whizzing all over the place. And she sets herself up there. By the time she gets there, they have run out of every single form of medical supply. They're bandaging wounds with corn husks because that's all they have. She shows up and she's got fresh bandages and she's got, you know, food and she's got medicine and all sorts of different things, anesthetics and everything else. And she sits there and because it's just crazy what's going on, she ends up operating on men, cutting bullets out of their faces in one case. At one point, she's cradling someone's head, and she feels a, ruffle, a rustle in her dress, and a piece of shrapnel goes and kills the guy she's holding. While the men were ducking for cover, she pretty much just sat there and worked. She was deferred to as though she were an officer. And at the, by the end of it, she had single-handedly supplied a field hospital that had treated 1,500 men virtually on the battlefield at Antietam. That was Clara Barton. And and what I talk about in the last year, she plays a huge role in the greatest medical disaster of the war, which was caused by the continuous nonstop fighting at Wilderness in Spotsylvania. Oh, and Clara, by the way, was in her own eyes a terrible failure at the beginning of the war. Enormously talented teacher. She sort of had her ambitions stuffed. She had gone to the patent office in New York and had been brilliant for a while that had those ambitions snuffed out too. She, she was feeling very sorry for herself and was almost suicidal when the war starts. So the war does these wonderful transformative things to people. In her case, she really did reinvent the way medicine was administered on the battlefield. And a teacher, she ends up getting fired. They're like, well, hey, we can give a man this job now that you've done all the work. And what she does at Fredericksburg is another great story you'll get in yeah. Hymns of the Republic at a time when we're, you mentioned taking down statues, reevaluating who we're going to raise up and cast in bronze. She seems like somebody, maybe we can get a statue of her instead of just a rest stop, as nice as having a rest stop and a, a Starbucks and whatnot that's in that rest stop is. She seems like a, a natural candidate. And I think if people pick up Hymns of the Republic, get to know her a little bit, they'll come to the same conclusion. You'll want to see her remembered. That's a good idea. You know, I, I, I think be absolutely nothing wrong, and I don't think anyone object to a, a, a Clara Barton statue. Of course, she went on to become famous later on as the, as the founder of the American chapter of the, of the Red Cross, which is how, if anybody knows anything about her, they would say that about her. But at this point in her life, we're not at the Red Cross yet. We're just dealing with battlefields. But yeah, I think, right, build all the statues you want to, uh, to Clara Barton. <laughs> 
Sherman's March to the Sea is another bit of the final year that you break down for us in Hymns of the Republic. So much of the history of Sherman, like you mentioned with Grant earlier, was written by angry, biased veterans of the mythical lost cause. They had nothing to do but sit around and write. Maybe they'd lost a limb, so they weren't going to be working their farm. And they just considered Sherman like Grant, his sidekick in as, a, as an evil duo that had, that had ruined everything. They start to tell themselves and retell themselves these stories over the generations. How do you meet the challenge of digging through all of that biased history to get to a fair portrait, warts and all, to use Lincoln's phrase, of Grant's second in command in that final year? Well, uh, in a lot of ways, it isn't that hard to wade through it because the wading has been done really in the last 20 years by other historians. Hmm. You're right. There was this version of Sherman as the devil himself that, you know, that his men raped and killed and plundered. They were no better than freebooters and plunderers and, and so forth. And this image of Sherman, the extreme image of Sherman has been corrected. All the houses they said he burned on, on his way through Georgia, he didn't burn many of those houses. Which is not to say that Sherman was not famous for his anti-civilian warfare. He was. The only question is, is one of degree. I mean, so Sherman fans out his troops between 20 and 25 miles and basically burns his way through Georgia. Now, the men are under instructions not to burn houses. Sometimes that, however, does not apply. Depends on whose house it is. Sometimes people have, have referred to what Sherman did was total war. And, and, and total war is, in our 20th century or 21st century understanding of it, is war where you kill civilians. It's what we did, let's say, in the firebombings of Dresden or Hamburg or Tokyo or certainly in the uh, dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Those were, that's total war. That's war against civilians where you're killing them. Sherman's concept of that was destruction of property. He, was not, he didn't kill people, civilians. His view of the war was that he wanted to make individual, the war in the minds of the Southerners war synonymous with individual ruin, which did not involve death. It just involved losing everything that you owned, all of your pigs and chickens and cows and farms and seeds and crops and barns and everything, which is what Sherman did in his march and which is what Sheridan did following the Sherman model in the Shenandoah Valley and even worse than that. So so Sherman, I guess, is what, what we what's happened is that portrait of him as kind of Lucifer of this of the lost cause, that has been reined in. Sherman was not that at all. Uh, it was vastly more complicated than that. And nowhere near that bloodthirsty and brutal. Hymns of the Republic describes the final victory of Grant over Lee and also Lee's rejection of calls to dissolve into the hills and conduct a guerrilla campaign, something that we hear about as part of that lost cause myth that seems to be more close to the reality than all these things we were just talking about that they wrote about and all the vilification of the Union generals. There are very human firsthand details in there that I hadn't come across in other books, and I wondered... Perhaps it's because historians want to roll credits quickly on the surrender at Appomattox and have all those high-minded things. You actually cite a source in Hymns of the Republic that debunked a lot of the myths that we get that are just so heartwarming from Appomattox but never really happened. How did you go about bringing those final weeks of the final year to life to create a unique experience for your readers and make sure that we didn't just race from Appomattox from that porch onto Lincoln's assassination and the final big set piece of the war. 
Yeah, there are all kinds of myths about Appomattox that need debunking. And before I get to the debunking, I'll uh, talk for a moment about uh, what you said about Lee. I think it's Lee's finest moment. And we, we have Lee's army has is about to surrender, and he's talking with his staff about what we're going to do. I mean, because it, 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 at this point, Lee has been fleeing Richmond and Petersburg. And at some point, the Union forces get to his west, which means he's boxed in, which means it's, it's really all over for the Confederacy. And the question is what to do. Lee doesn't want to surrender. He eventually does surrender, but he doesn't want to surrender. But he's having talks with his staff. And there is a very strong feeling even among the more you would consider the more responsible members of his staff, that they should just take to the hills and fight a guerrilla war. This was a exactly what the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, was saying and had been saying, was this is what we should do. And not only that, but you know, we've got a model for it. There was this incredible Confederate guerrilla. He was on the more official side of the guerrilla fighters. He had a commission. He reported to Lee. His name was John Singleton Mosby. And he inhabited an area behind the Union lines in Virginia that became to be known as Mosby's Confederacy. And with a very few men, he operated for years and caused enormous destruction and damage and disruption. And they never caught him. They, they called him the Grey Ghost. They never, they never caught Mosby. And so Mosby was kind of a, and there were some other guerrillas who were models for this. But the, the model was, hey, look, we could do this. We could keep this, this war going forever. You know, we could keep this war going with the presumable goal in mind that eventually the North would just say enough. OK, we'll let you all have whatever it is that you want, nationhood or, or something. This is presented now to Lee. You know, let's take to the hills. Let's get out of here. Let's get let's, let's go and we'll just keep fighting. And Lee, I think it's his greatest moment. He simply and very firmly says no. And the no from in spite of the fact that the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, was publicly supporting this idea, Lee, Lee was the power on the ground. I mean, Lee was the actual power. And Lee said, no, we as a nation are not going to do that. And by doing so saved just and it was and it, it was. Lincoln's and Grant's worst nightmare that the Confederacy just wouldn't surrender, would keep fighting. Uh, in some ways, I think it was a, a very, very deep nightmare of the Allied forces in World War II that once they got to Japan, there was going to be this 10-year war with every man, woman, and child in Japan fighting them. I mean, the same kind of endless, bloody war. So Lee made the decision. It didn't happen. And he went and saw, as he says, it. I went and saw General Grant. So I think that's an important moment, I think, at the time that Lee's army is, is surrendered. There's a couple of myths, though, that I loved. But here's my, I'll tell you what, I, I, just, I won't talk about all of them. I'll just talk about one, because it was one of my favorite myths. And, oh, I just love this myth. And it was so wonderful because it showed the brotherhood between the North and the South. And in fact, in spite of all the fighting, they kind of had this respect for each other and there was honor. And here's the way it went. Here's the way the story went. The old story that I loved went. Rebel soldiers are marching into the tiny little village of Appomattox and their Appomattox courthouse and they're, and they're marching down the path and Union soldiers are lining the path and the Confederates are marching to stack their weapons in surrender. You know, when, when you, when army surrenders, it has to stack its weapons and then walk away from its weapons. 
So that's what's that's the general idea that's going on here. And so the downtrodden Confederates are kind of trudging past the Union soldiers who are sitting there. And in this story, the way it goes, they are standing there at what is called uh, order arms. And order arms is, in military terms, is a is a posture of guarding somebody, meaning you are standing there with your let's say the rifle in your right hand with the rifle on the ground. You know, I don't know, think of the guards at Buckingham Palace or something. That, that's order arms. It's a posture in which you are guarding someone. It's an aggressive posture. And the way the story goes, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, the great hero of Gettysburg, great hero of Little Round Top, who, who is commanding, although actually he wasn't, was allegedly commanding the forces, gives another order. And the order is carry arms. At which point the men take their rifles and put them up on their shoulders. That's a salute. And at this point, the Confederates are astounded at this great show of respect for them. And, and they're, they're, they're looking around with gratitude and brotherhood and wonderful feelings of I don't know what. And then General Gordon, the, the Confederate general, does this kind of cinematic bow on his horse to Chamberlain. And it's just this breathtaking moment of kind of reconciliation. It never happened. <laughs> it never, I hate to come to such an abrupt punchline. <laughs> that never happened. Didn't happen. And it, the interesting thing was that I think it was Chamberlain who told the story first somehow that he had done this, which no, no one, no one recorded. Not a single person. I mean, think of how many people are here. No one records this because it didn't happen. He, he tells a story afterwards that's something like this and how, you know, Gordon bows and it's this kind of moment. And then, and then because Gordon, I think, liked the story because it, you know, reflected well on everybody. It was kind of the way, instead of being bitter and disgruntled, which is how they actually were at Appomattox, kind of reflected well on them. And so Gordon never, never bothered to contradict it. And not only that, I think he embellished it slightly later on. So you have kind of the two generals, or two generals, colluding to form this total myth. Anyway, there wasn't a lot of brotherhood at Appomattox. Uh, initially, the, the Confederates wouldn't even agree to march in and stack their weapons. They, they Instead of doing that, they went to a field and had their own private surrender ceremony with no Union yeah, people. I love that. Yeah, yeah it's like, <laughs> and then the Union... That's not how it works. Yeah, the Union commander heard and said, uh, sorry, guys. That, yeah. Yeah, he said, no, we've had our own, we've taken care of it, we stacked our weapons in the field. He's Can another, you imagine? You guys are going to go it's back comical. and get the weapons and you're going to drag those weapons back and you're going to march down through the main street in Appomattox and you're going to stack them there, bud. And that's what happened. So this idea of the wonderful outpouring of love and affection, uh, there is, however, an interesting, this is, this pays off a story I told earlier at around the surrender. There was a moment when some of the, the West pointers kind of got together. They wanted to see each other. These were people, Confederate officers and Union officers who had been at West Point together, and there were lots of them who, who were. And so they went through the lines, and there was a, and, and that, I think, was true fraternization. These people were friends. They, know, they knew each other. And one of the things that happened is, you know, is uh, I told you that story about Grant and Longstreet, where Grant had pressed the five, the gold piece, whatever, into Longstreet's hand to pay back an old debt. The two of them met there too. Grant went up to Longstreet and said, you know, I can't remember the words exactly. They're in my book, but it's, well, Pete, let's, I hope we could have a, another game of brag again some other day. Um, kind of a payoff of that old, that old moment. Anyway, yeah. And I would recommend to your listeners to go there too. 
Mathematics is the house is like not entirely what it was. It's been kind of reassembled, but it, it really does look exactly like the old house. I mean, it's got a lot of the old bricks in it, but it's cool to go to. But the place, there are some places in the Civil War that I visited that it just had the spiritual kick to them. I don't know what it is. I, I, Appomattox really does that for me. Have you ever been there? I haven't. Oh, it's, it's really something. But I know what you mean. I've been to where Stonewall Jackson died, and despite him being a Confederate, Confederate it's a very... As you say, spiritual place. You feel it really moving. It is. I, I feel the same way about the house where he died. And there are, you know, places. I don't know, Gettysburg had the pieces of Gettysburg that do that. But yeah, it's an interesting moment. Well, speaking of the spiritual feelings you get from walking the ground is a perfect place to wrap up a book called Hymns of the Republic. I really appreciate you joining me, S.C. Gwynn. There's so much in this book that you'll enjoy, even if you're not a Civil War buff, even if you haven't picked up a book on it before. If you are somebody who likes to debunk the myths, though, of the Civil War, wants to make sure that you are valuing the important moments like that one and not the ones that are mythical later that people made up, the book that you cite in Hymns of the Republic is Lee's Last Retreat, The Flight to Appomattox by William Marvel. A wonderful book. Best debunking, you said. Best research debunking of many of those. Yeah, he's he is a professional debunker, and he, he's really good. He's done it elsewhere too. He's he's really good at it, and he's finest for you. Well, I want to thank you for adding a richness to my understanding of the Civil War's final year. I read these books a lot. I've always been fascinated by this. I stop on those spots on the roadside like there where Stonewall Jackson died and imagine all of those sweeping moments in something in history. So I love a book that gives me a nugget that I didn't know before. And I love to learn that things that I thought were right, that were true stories, are wrong. (laughs) I get all of that here from Hymns of the Republic. I hope listeners will pick up a copy, go read that excerpt of the book at historyauthor.com and whet their appetites for a really rich retelling of a conflict whose music, poetry, and prose are woven deep into the American nation today. You'll look at yourself differently if you're a U.S. citizen. Look at the country differently. Maybe we could all use a little bit of that Grant spirit. You'll certainly absorb it out of Hymns of the Republic. Well, thank you. That's that's a wonderful, a wonderful way to close. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> that's pretty I, good. I was, yeah. <laughs> well, your book is opens and closes well, and all in between is good. I really did enjoy it. Thanks so much for making the time to chat with me about it. Thanks, Dean. It's always great to talk to you. Again, the book is Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. Remember to click through this episode's page at historyauthor.com when purchasing your copy. Every time you buy a book through us, you're helping us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to S.C. Gwynn for joining me and for the sweeping story of the Civil War's final year, where the outcome was anything but inevitable. And there are so many stories that we overlook in that rush to get to Appomattox Courthouse and Lincoln's assassination. That name again is G-W-Y-N-N-E. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, on Instagram at The History Author Show, or facebook.com slash 
History Author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. Or enjoy one of the almost 200 episodes that are in our archives. Not to mention the Classical Wisdom Wednesdays in our archives, as well as the History in Five Friday episodes produced with Simon & Schuster. And there are those written Q&As we post from time to time, so I think you really will get your fix of history by going to our website. And if you're listening on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it if you took a minute to leave us a review. There's almost 50 now five-star reviews. It's important that you have a fun time when you tune in and that you want to subscribe and tell a friend. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.